We're in Mark chapter 15, verse 16 to 32. And I will go ahead and read this for us. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who are crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're actually just a few weeks away uh, from finishing the book, and we'll be starting another series very soon. And here we're hitting the crucifixion of Christ, the cross of Christ. And what I want to do is point your attention to three things here. Three things here related to the cross of Christ, and that is the history of the cross, the irony of the cross, and the beauty of the cross. These three. The history, the irony, and the beauty of the cross. So first, the history. I think at this point in our series, I've probably done enough to reiterate for you guys just... Um, how Mark, time and time again, indicates to us the historical reliability of his account, uh, assuring us that he's not writing a legend or fiction or fable, but an eyewitness account. Uh, that's been a repeating theme, so I'll make this first point brief. Uh, the amount of eyewitness detail here is laser-focused on this event. Okay? Uh, it really could only have come from someone who was on the ground experiencing all this in real time, not from someone writing this centuries later as some, some ecumenical council. That's not possible. Uh, for example, the mentioning of Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and, and that name actually comes up again in Paul's letter to the Romans, although we can't be 100% sure it's the same person. But Simon the Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus, is there. So the early readers, during the time when this letter is already circulating in the early church, could go to that region and find him and corroborate these events. This is actually a better way to confirm something sometimes than, than you know, something that might be archived somewhere. So, you know, for example, yesterday I met someone uh, who came up to me and said, hey, I am so-and-so. And, and I just kind of stared at him, kind of like, I, I don't know you. 
And then, he's, and then he proceeded to say, I am so-and-so's father. And that's when I said, oh, I totally know who you're supposed to be, but nice meeting you. Um, sometimes that's a better way to identify someone, and this is exactly what we have. Simon of Cyrene, so-and-so's father. Okay. So you can find him. Corroborate these events. And then there's the details of the Roman crucifixion. Like the fact that the criminal would carry his own beam on, his, on, on which his hands would be nailed. And, and they, they took them to this place called Golgotha, which back then meant place of a skull. Uh, and there's also the mention of the practice of allowing Jews uh, to offer uh, those who are being crucified a strong drink mixed with myrrh to numb the pain. It's because it says in Proverbs 31, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those in distress. So that was something that the Romans had permitted the Jewish, to do, the Jews, Jewish people to do. Jesus, although he, he refuses it, because he chooses to endure the, the fullness of the suffering, these are not details that can just be conjured up uh, centuries later by Jewish authors who had no access to the internet or Wikipedia or the encyclopedia. Point is, Mark is constantly infusing into his amount, uh, this account uh, of Jesus' final days uh, just a ton of historical detail that's worth considering. Now, some people would say, well, Mark was still an apostle, wasn't he? He's a Christian. So he could be writing all this from a very biased perspective. Right? And to that, we can say, for one, Mark's style of writing uh, is not at all biased. Okay? You have to read what he's saying. It's not didactic. It's not moralistic. He doesn't say, see how right I am? Okay? Uh, or, you'd be a fool not to believe me. Or, he doesn't take that kind of tone. He doesn't say, I told you so. Look, he doesn't talk like that. He simply gives us the facts. Right? He's confident enough to simply give us the facts, the facts of what happened, and then he lets the, he, he lets the facts speak for themselves. And then the readers have the responsibility of making a decision about those facts. Okay? So his writing style doesn't seem like he's biased. Because right? we know what biased language sounds like. We know what that tone is. We know what that language is. He, he doesn't sound like that. Secondly, though, our passage today is actually one of those events that an outside secular historical source from this period confirms, and that's Josephus. Josephus was a well-trusted, credible, respected, non-Christian historian from the first century, and he mentions Jesus very specifically, identifies him as the brother of the Apostle James, and he was a wise teacher who was crucified by Pilate. And, quote, beaten in his naked body with scourges and then crucified. Uh, this is, this, all of these things go to tell us Mark is really unpacking for us a slice of his history, uh, a, a historical narrative that's worthy of our consideration. And, and through that, what we can consider then is, okay, why that, why that matters to us. It warrants a response. If this happened, if this is real, you have to, resp you have to take this into account. You have, you're not obligated to go to Barnes and Nobles, look through all the fiction section or the sci-fi section or the fantasy section and respond to those things. You're not obligated to do any of that. Whereas if this is history, if this is history, if this happened, if Jesus walked the earth and said the things that he said and did the things that he's done, you need to respond. You need to make up your mind about who this guy is. Now, I said that Mark is not didactic or he's not imposing about his point, but uh, he, he has a point. He does have a point. Uh, there's something that this piece of history is pointing us to, and that's what I want to show you with the next two points. And that's the irony of the cross and the beauty of the cross. So, second, the irony. There's something that's terribly 
ironic that's going on here. Okay, the soldiers had just scourged Jesus. We, he, they flogged him. We, we saw that last week. And now they're mocking him. They're mocking him. How are they doing that? They take, here's what they do. They take Jesus' claim to be king. And they make him suffer all the things that a king would never suffer. Okay? So they highlight the claim that he is king. And they make him suffer all the things that a king would never suffer. They place Jesus' title and then the horrific treatment of Jesus side by side. Sort of like a juxtaposition. The, the two things that don't go, go together, going along together side by side. So that's why they have this purple cloak, uh, this fake <clears throat> robe basically, and a crown made of thorns. And they kneel in homage to him. And at the same time, they strike him, they spit on him, and they take him to be crucified. Okay. It, this is all just an ironic joke for them. Okay. Here's, here's the supposed king, and here's how we're going to treat this king. Okay. So there's that from the Roman soldier side. And then the Jews add on to this mockery. In verse 26, it says, The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And right, I don't know if you can notice it immediately, but that's meant to be a very ironic picture because um, a king is a, the king is the one who's going to be pronouncing a death sentence to, to these violent armed robbers, right? But the king is in between them, being crucified along with them. Okay? How ironic, how, how funny is that? That's, that's the whole point of this. That's what the Jew, Jewish people are saying. They're turning the scene of Jesus' crucifixion into something laughable. And then in verse 30, they say, save yourself and come down from the cross. Okay? And that is sarcastically pleading with Jesus to do what he said he came to do for others. He said he's come to save, to save the lost, to seek and to save the lost. And they're here saying, look who needs saving now. Save yourself, okay? It's not us who need saving, it's you. Okay? They're, they're, they're making a sarcastic statement by saying, save yourself. You talk about saving people all the time. Save yourself. Verse 32, they add this. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And that is not a literal challenge, per se. It's more of an insult, okay? Let the Christ, the King of Israel... Right? This empty praise. Saying that to mean, see, do you still think, do you actually still think you're the king? Do you still think you're the Christ? Okay. We've nailed you on the cross. Doesn't this prove to you and to the world you're nothing like a king? Okay. You're nothing like the, the Messiah, the Christ. Okay, so when you put all this together, what do you have? Both the Romans and the Jews thinking that Jesus' claim to be king, to be the Christ, to be absolutely false, absolutely fake. It's total fake news. And that this crucifixion is the clearest evidence of that. They consider the crucifixion to be the single greatest contradiction to Jesus' claims. Okay? And this to be a violent interruption to Jesus building his kingdom. His crucifixion. Now, but you know what the real irony is? The, the, the true truly terrible irony behind all of this that they didn't realize is that in silence and in meekness, Jesus, in permitting all of this, was building his kingdom. Okay. 
They're saying, look, look how we're taking away your crown and your robe. And Jesus is saying, yes, I'm, I'm actually literally laying down my crown and my robe. Okay. In a way, you're, you're doing me a favor because this is what I came to do. Jesus has said all throughout his early earthly ministry, this would happen and that this ought to happen. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes to be rejected, to be tried, mocked, killed, and on the third day rise again. And that's how he's going to be this Lamb of God who will be slain, take away the sin of the world by laying his life down. That's why he says in the Gospel of John, I'm the good shepherd and I lay my life down willingly for my sheep. So the real irony here is actually that as the Jews and the soldiers are thinking, they're successfully dethroning Jesus. Jesus is in fact building his throne through them. Through them. Not in spite or despite of them, but through them. He's building his throne of mercy and grace. His his throne grounded in his love for sinners. His forgiveness towards sinners. And not his condemnation. How ironic is that? That as they think that his suffering is an interruption to Jesus' real purpose and exposing his imaginary kingdom to be this hoax, this grand hoax, this fiction that Jesus is writing, turns out to be his precise purpose. It turns out to be real. This whole plan of ending Jesus, putting an end to his so-called kingdom, was that itself was the imaginary hoax. And everything Jesus said was to come true. How ironic is that? And when we consider this more deeply and personally, okay, I think there's something here that's, that's actually very com- tremendously comforting for all of us. Um, it will give us this new outlook on all the suffering, all the unpleasant things that, that come our way. How? by reminding us that suffering is not an interruption to our real life, but it is our real life. Okay. Just as suffering was not an interruption to Jesus' life and his agenda and his mission, to the extent that we live out his will for our lives, suffering doesn't interrupt our lives. It doesn't interrupt our reality. It is our reality. Okay. That is the real life. It's the life that we're called to live while faithfully depending on God, trusting in God, just like Jesus. That's what's real. And what we might think is this most wonderful plan we've laid out for ourselves. The plan that should unfold without any interruption, without suffering. That's the imaginary hoax. That's the fiction. You know what the Bible says is real? Here it is. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. We share abundantly in Christ's suffering. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort, too. According to the Bible, suffering is not an interruption of our reality. It is our reality. It is our reality. And the imaginary life is the one without suffering. The imaginary life is the one where we 
run away from every suffering, everything that's unpleasant about life. The Bible is so clear about that. On this side of heaven, on this side of heaven, your life will be marked with suffering. Why? Because of sin, because of human fallenness. But as we suffer with Christ and for Christ, we carry the mark of Christ. We will mature into His image. We'll acquire a new character through new endurance, new hope, and we'll acquire a certain glory and a constant comfort along the way. And the Bible says, that's your life. That's reality. And in a sense, there's, there's the irony behind our lives, the irony behind our suffering. It's not an interruption to God's plan. It's fulfilling His plan. It's fulfilling His plans for you and me. No matter what you have suffered in life, or what you're suffering currently, or what you will suffer in the future, none of it will change this finale to your life. It will be a good ending. All things will work out for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. So you can always, 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 always go in peace. Always go in peace. It's like the reason why we would pay money to actually walk into a movie theater and watch an intense, violent, stress-inducing war movie or a horror movie. Why would you, do, why would you take a chunk of your week out pay money to sit in the theater and terrorize yourself like that. Why would you do such a thing? Why? Because you know in the end, all will be well. You know in, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, no matter what happens, right, it will be good. Even if it's not good for the protagonist in the film, it will be good for you. You will walk out in one piece with soda and popcorn and then go home and go to bed. So you go in with peace and you walk out in peace. That's our life. When people ask you, how, how can you have any peace when you think about all that you suffered through, all that you're currently suffering, all that you might suffer in the future, all the anxieties you have, uncertainties you have of the future, how can you have any peace in this life? We point to Christ and we say, that's how. The one who suffered this kind of mockery, this kind of crucifixion, and this kind of burial, and still walked out of his own grave. That was his finale, and, and I am his, my my soul and my body belong to Him. That's why. That's why I go in peace. That's why I go to bed at night and sleep soundly. What was the ending to Jesus' life, His suffering, His death? It was His resurrection. It was Him being glorified. Okay. So the Bible tells us, if we therefore join in His suffering for His name's sake, we join in His end. We will be resurrected in glory as well. And that's what's most real for us. It's the only thing that's real for us. Only thing that's real beneath this fog of our short-lived ambitions and dreams of health and wealth and prosperity. Behind that hoax is the reality of resurrection that comes after the suffering. And that has been the song of the church and the poetry of the church ever since the book of Acts. That's why we sing these things. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. So all glory be to Christ. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. These words are meant to, to remind us what is ultimately real, what we confess to be ultimately real. 
And that's why when we do things like the catechism, part of the reason why it can sound so out of the ordinary is because it's not what we ordinarily think is real, but this is when we check back into reality, the questions and the answers. We check back into God's reality. And we sing this reality, and we, we fellowship in this reality, and we read about and hear about this reality. And then there's also this. Under, underneath the, the irony of the cross is also the beauty, the beauty of the cross. Now, the quick review. Remember the C.S. Lewis quote I quote for you like every other month or so? Okay, you should have this memorized by now, but here it is. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, the Jews have called him a demon, right? You're, you're possessed by a demon. And that's partly why they wanted him dead. The Roman soldiers have shut him up for a fool, right? Spat on him, mocked him. That's two of the three logical responses to Jesus. What's left? It's seeing him for who he is and worshiping him. Seeing him as the one who's come to deal with the problem of human rebellion against God, to make provision for mankind to be reconciled to this holy and righteous God through his suffering and death, through his laying down his crown and his robe. Otherwise, you join the other two groups. You, jo- you, you necessarily, logically, have to land in either one of those other responses with the Jews or with the Roman soldiers. You have to join the mockers, essentially. You either worship him or you mock him. And the thing is, you and I have. We have mocked him. You and I have mocked Jesus just the same. We didn't spit on him. We didn't put a fake crown and robe on him, but we mocked him more like the way Noah's neighbors mocked him when when he was building the ark. Do you remember how they mocked him? They didn't spit on him. They didn't beat him. They simply said, there is no rain. There's no rain. And therefore, no need for salvation and no need for an ark. And we do that with God all the time. All the time. There's no sin. There's no urgency to my repentance. And therefore, no need for forgiveness. There's no need for grace. There's no need for forgiveness. There's no need for the cross. There's no need for a savior. That's mocking him. That's mocking him. And the irony here is, even as we say that, or have said that, even as we try to live as though we don't need God, we, we will still go on behaving as though we need a God. Uh, David Foster Wallace is the late atheist writer who said, quote, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He's saying this as an atheist. In the day-to-day trenches of life, adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what to worship. Only choice is what to worship. And pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, 
if they are where, you're t where, you, where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. See what he's talking about? Even as an atheist, he's able to identify how we all are, in a sense, like Adam and Eve. We're all eating from some tree. Okay, maybe you're not eating from the tree of life, fine, but you're eating from some tree. You're turning to some God to save you. And even he identifies turning to the wrong tree will cost you a million deaths. It will cost us everything. It will leave us like Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed. Exposed and ashamed. And so what did they do? They, they turned to right, thick leaves and they covered themselves up. Yet because they still felt naked and ashamed, that wasn't enough. There was... They were still isolated from God and from one another. So what does God do? Here's where the good news comes in. He clothes them. He clothes them with his own hands. He kills an animal, takes his skin, and covers them with it. And that's when they felt safe again. When there was blood, when there was death, when there was a sacrifice. That animal, stripped of his skin, in order to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness was just a, a shadow. It was a foreshadowing of this Lamb of God, the Son of God, who will come and be stripped of His clothes so that sinners can be clothed by His righteousness. That's what Jesus came to do, to undo Adam's curse, to cover Adam's nakedness, to cover our nakedness. And whereas Adam and all of humanity forfeited that tree of life in the garden, Jesus takes the cross, so when you look to him, what you find is a new tree of life. That cross is a tree of life, so that all those who believe in him will have life in him, eternal life in him. See, if you see Jesus this way, as your suffering Savior and King, the cross will not just be a bloody sight, ugly sight, and a horrific sight, it will be a beautiful sight. It will be a beautiful sight to you. This is where you find God's greatest evidence of his love. It's at the cross. And it's also a, a, a proof to you that he loves you and understands your suffering as well. And he can still be working in your life even when it seems like there's no reason, there's no rhyme or reason to your suffering. You can still be assured that he is still with you, he's still the author of your life just as he was in the suffering and death of Christ, and he was still the author of that event. Is this how you see the cross? Is this how you delight in the cross? And is this what you say of the cross? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed, mingled down, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. The The... The beautiful irony to the way that these people mocked Jesus with a crown of thorns is it's because it was a crown of thorns. For us, it's a beautiful crown. It's because it was a crown of thorns we worship him and we surrender ourselves to him. Because he was weak for us, we consider him to be our strong and mighty savior. That's the beautiful irony 
to all of this. That's the beauty of the cross. And I hope we'll all come to see it. I hope you will all come to respond to it with praise and not with mockery. And as we come to the table, for those of you who have knowledge this, let's be reminded of that. Let's be reminded of that. This table came at the cross, at the, the cost of him dying on the cross. It's, it's an expensive meal. It's a costly, costly meal. So let's take it with all of our hearts, all of our sincerity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and his gift to us, his coming to save us from ourselves. Save us from our endless search of a God who would come and satisfy us in some way, save us in some way, yet left us empty and dry and with a million deaths. God, we, we want to turn to your son now. Help us to see him as the one and only true God who gives us that final rest that we've been thirsting for, the final rest that, that we we're always, always yearning for. Help us to encounter him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.